Caesar Augustus, Part Six of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forster. Augustus Caesar, Part Six, Paragraphs Ninety to One Hundred and One. We have the following account of him respecting his belief in omens and such like. He had so great a dread of thunder and lightning that he always carried about him a sealed skin by way of preservation. And upon any apprehension of a violent storm he would retire to some place of concealment in a vault underground, having formerly been terrified by a flash of lightning while traveling in the night, as we have already mentioned. He neither slighted his own dreams nor those of other people relating to himself. At the Battle of Philippi, although he had resolved not to stir out of his tent on account of his being indisposed, yet, being warned by a dream of one of his friends, he changed his mind, and well it was that he did so, for, in the enemy's attack, his couch was pierced and cut to pieces on the supposition of his being in it. He had many frivolous and frightful dreams during the spring, but in the other parts of the year they were less frequent and more significative. Upon his frequently visiting a temple near the capital, which he had dedicated to Jupiter Tonans, he dreamt that Jupiter Capitolinus complained that his worshippers were taken from him, and that upon this he replied, he had only given him the thunderer for his porter. He therefore immediately suspended little bells round the summit of the temple, because such commonly hung at the gates of great houses. In consequence of a dream, too, he always, on a certain day of the year, begged alms of the people, reaching out his hand to receive the dole which they offered him. Some signs and omens he regarded as infallible. If in the morning his shoe was put on wrong, the left instead of the right, that boded some disaster. If, when he commenced a long journey, by sea or land, there happened to fall a mizzling rain, he held it to be a good sign of a speedy and happy return. He was much affected likewise with anything out of the common course of nature. A palm tree, which chanced to grow up between some stones in the court of his house, he transplanted into a court where the images of the household gods were placed, and took all possible care to make it thrive in the island of Capri. Some decayed branches of an old ilex, which hung drooping to the ground, recovered themselves upon his arrival, at which he was so delighted that he made an exchange with the Republic of Naples of the island of Enaria, Ischia, for that of Capri. He likewise observed certain days, as never to go from home the day after the nundie, nor to begin any serious business upon the nones, avoiding nothing else in it, as he writes to Tiberius, than its unlucky name. With regard to the religious ceremonies of foreign nations, he was a strict observer of those which had been established by ancient custom, but others he held in no esteem. For, having been initiated at Athens, and coming afterwards to hear a cause at Rome, relative to the privileges of the priests of the Attic Ceres, when some of the mysteries of their sacred rites were to be introduced in the pleadings, 
he dismissed those who sat upon the bench as judges with him, as well as the bystanders, and bared the argument upon those points himself. But on the other hand, he not only declined in his progress through Egypt to go out of his way to pay a visit to Epis, but he likewise commended his grandson Caius for not paying his devotions at Jerusalem in his passage through Judea. Since we are upon this subject, it may not be improper to give an account of the omens before and at his birth, as well as afterwards, which gave hopes of his future greatness and the good fortune that constantly attended him. A part of the wall of Velatri having in former times been struck with thunder, the response of the soothsayers was that a native of that town would some time or other arrive at supreme power. Relying on which prediction, the Velatrians both then and several times afterwards made war upon the Roman people to their own ruin. At last, it appeared by the event that the omen had portended the elevation of Augustus. Julius Marathus informs us that a few months before his birth, there happened at Rome a prodigy, by which was signified that nature was in travail with a king for the Roman people, and that the Senate, in alarm, came to the resolution that no child born that year should be brought up, but that those amongst them whose wives were pregnant, to secure to themselves a chance of that dignity, took care that the decree of the Senate should not be registered in the treasury. I find in the theological books of Asclepiades the Mendesian that Atia, upon attending at midnight a religious solemnity in honor of Apollo, when the rest of the matrons retired home, fell asleep on her couch in the temple, and that a serpent immediately crept to her and soon after withdrew. She, awaking upon it, purified herself, as usual, after the embraces of her husband, and instantly there appeared upon her body a mark in the form of a serpent which she never after could efface, and which obliged her, during the subsequent part of her life, to decline the use of the public baths. Augustus, it was added, was born in the tenth month after, and for that reason was thought to be the son of Apollo. The same Atia, before her delivery, dreamed that her bowels stretched to the stars, and expanded through the whole circuit of heaven and earth. His father, Octavius, likewise, dreamt that a sunbeam issued from his wife's womb. Upon the day he was born, the Senate being engaged in a debate on Catiline's conspiracy, and Octavius, in consequence of his wife's being in childbirth, coming late into the house, it is a well-known fact that Publius Nigidius, upon hearing the occasion of his coming so late, and the hour of his wife's delivery, declared that the world had got a master. Afterwards, when Octavius, upon marching with his army through the deserts of Thrace, consulted the oracle in the grove of Father Bacchus, with barbarous rites, concerning his son, he received from the priests an answer to the same purpose, because, when they poured wine upon the altar, there burst out so prodigious a flame that it ascended above the roof of the temple and reached up to the heavens. A circumstance which had never happened to any one but Alexander the Great, upon his sacrificing at the same altars. And next night he dreamt that he saw his son under a more than human appearance, with thunder and a scepter, and the other insignia of Jupiter, Optimus, Maximus, having on his head a radiant crown, mounted upon a chariot decked with laurel, and drawn by six pair of milk-white horses. Whilst he was yet an infant, as Caius Drissus relates, being laid in his cradle by his nurse and in a low place, the next day he was not to be found, 
and after he had been sought for a long time, he was at last discovered upon a lofty tower, lying with his face towards the rising sun. When he first began to speak, he ordered the frogs that happened to make a troublesome noise upon an estate belonging to the family near the town to be silent. And there goes a report that frogs never croaked there since that time. As he was dining in a grove at the fourth milestone on the companion road, an eagle suddenly snatched a piece of bread out of his hand, and, soaring to a prodigious height after hovering, came down most unexpectedly and returned it to him. Quintus Catullus had a dream, for two nights successively, after his dedication of the capital. The first night, he dreamt that Jupiter, out of several boys of the order of the nobility, who were playing about his altar, selected one, into whose bosom he put the public seal of the commonwealth, which he held in his hand. But in his vision, the next night, he saw in the bosom of Jupiter Capitolinus the same boy, whom he ordered to be removed, but it was forbidden by the god, who declared that it must be brought up to become the guardian of the state. The next day, meeting Augustus, with whom till that hour he had not the least acquaintance, and looking at him with admiration, he said he was extremely like the boy he had seen in his dream. Some give a different account of Catullus' first dream, namely, that Jupiter, upon several noble lads requesting of him that they might have a guardian, had pointed to one amongst them, to whom they were to prefer their requests, and putting his fingers to the boy's mouth to kiss, he afterwards applied them to his own. Marcus Cicero, as he was attending Caius Caesar to the capital, happened to be telling some of his friends a dream which he had the preceding night, in which he saw a comely youth, let down from heaven by a golden chain, who stood at the door of the capital, and had a whip put into his hands by Jupiter. And immediately upon sight of Augustus, who had been sent for by his uncle Caesar to the sacrifice, and was as yet perfectly unknown to most of the company, he affirmed that it was the very boy he had seen in his dream. When he assumed the manly toga, his senatorian tunic becoming loose in the seam on each side fell at his feet. Some would have this to forebode, that the order of which that was the badge of distinction would some time or other be subject to him. Julius Caesar, in cutting down a wood to make room for his camp near Munda, happened to light upon a palm tree, and ordered it to be preserved as an omen of victory. From the root of this tree there put out immediately a sucker, which, in a few days, grew to such a height as not only to equal, but to overshadow it, and afford room for many nests of wild pigeons which built in it, though that species of bird particularly avoids a hard and rough leaf. It is likewise reported that Caesar was chiefly influenced by this prodigy to prefer his sister's grandson before all others for his successor. In his retirement at Apollonia, he went with his friend Agrippa to visit Theogenes, the astrologer, in his gallery on the roof. Agrippa, who first consulted the fates, having great and almost incredible fortunes predicted of him, Augustus did not choose to make known his nativity, and persisted for some time in the refusal, from a mixture of shame and fear, lest his fortunes should be predicted as inferior to those of Agrippa. Being persuaded, however, after much importunity to declare it, Theogenes started up from his seat, and paid him adoration. Not long afterwards, Augustus was so confident on the greatness of his destiny, that he published his horoscope, and struck a silver coin, bearing upon it the sign of Capricorn, 
under the influence of which he was born. After the death of Caesar, upon his return from Apollonia, as he was entering the city, on a sudden, in a clear and bright sky, a circle resembling the rainbow surrounded the body of the sun, and immediately afterwards the tomb of Julia, Caesar's daughter, was struck by lightning. In his first consulship, whilst he was observing the auguries, twelve vultures presented themselves, as they had done to Romulus. And when he offered sacrifice, the livers of all the victims were folded inward in the lower part, a circumstance which was regarded by those present, who had skill in things of that nature, as an indubitable prognostic of great and wonderful fortune. He certainly had a presentiment of the issue of all his wars. When the troops of the Triumviri were collected about Bologna, an eagle which sat upon his tent and was attacked by two crows, beat them both, and struck them to the ground in the view of the whole army, who thence inferred that discord would arise between the three colleagues, which would be attended with the like event, and it accordingly happened. At Philippi he was assured of success by a Thessalian, upon the authority, as he pretended, of the divine Caesar himself, who had appeared to him while he was travelling in a by-road. At Perugia, the sacrifice not presenting any favourable intimations, but the contrary, he ordered fresh victims. The enemy, however, carrying off the sacred things in a sudden sally, it was agreed amongst the augurs that all the dangers and misfortunes which had threatened the sacrificer would fall upon the heads of those who had got possession of the entrails. And accordingly, so it happened. The day before the sea-fight near Sicily, as he was walking upon the shore, a fish leaped out of the sea and laid itself at his feet. At Axiom, while he was going down to his fleet to engage the enemy, he was met by an ass with a fellow driving it. The name of the man was Eutychus, and that of the animal, Nikon. After the victory, he erected a brazen statue to each, in a temple built upon the spot where he had encamped. His death, of which I shall now speak, and his subsequent deification, were intimated by divers manifest prodigies. As he was finishing the census amidst a great crowd of people in the campus marshes, an eagle hovered round him several times, and then directed its course to a neighboring temple, where it settled upon the name of Agrippa, and at the first letter. Upon observing this, he ordered his colleague Tiberius to put up the vows, which it is usual to make on such occasions, for the succeeding lustrum. For he declared he would not meddle with what it was probable he should never accomplish, though the tables were ready drawn for it. About the same time, the first letter of his name, in an inscription upon one of his statues, was struck out by lightning, which was interpreted as a presage that he would live only a hundred days longer, the letter C denoting that number, and that he would be placed amongst the gods, as Caesar, which is the remaining part of the word Caesar, signifies, in the Tuscan language, a god. Being, therefore, about dispatching Tiberius to Illyricum, and designing to go with him as far as Beneventum, but being detained by several persons who applied to him respecting causes they had depending, he cried out, and it was afterwards regarded as an omen of his death, Not all the business in the world shall detain me at home one moment longer. And setting out upon his journey, he went as far as Astura, whence, contrary to his custom, he put to sea in the night-time, as there was a favourable wind. His malady proceeded from diarrhoea, notwithstanding which he went round the coast of Campania, 
in the adjacent islands, and spent four days in that of Caprae, where he gave himself up entirely to repose and relaxation. Happening to sail by the bay of Puteoli, the passengers and mariners aboard a ship of Alexandria, just then arrived, clad all in white, with chaplets upon their heads and offering incense, loaded him with praises and joyful acclamations, crying out, By you we live, by you we sail securely, by you enjoy our liberty and our fortunes. At which, being greatly pleased, he distributed to each of those who attended him forty gold pieces, requiring from them an assurance on oath not to employ the sum given them in any other way than the purchase of Alexandrian merchandise. And, during several days afterwards, he distributed Togge and Pallia, among other gifts, on condition that the Romans should use the Greek, and the Greeks the Roman dress and language. He likewise constantly attended to see the boys perform their exercises, according to an ancient custom still continued at Caprae. He gave them likewise an entertainment in his presence, and not only permitted, but required from them the utmost freedom in jesting, and scrambling for fruit, victuals, and other things which he threw amongst them. In a word, he indulged himself in all the ways of amusement he could contrive. He called an island near Caprae, Epregopolis, the city of the Doolittles, from the indolent life which several of his party led there. A favorite of his, one Masgabas, he used to call Tistes, as if he had been the planter of the island. And observing from his room a great company of people with torches, assembled at the tomb of this Masgabas, who died the year before, he uttered very distinctly this verse, which he made extempore. Ctistu de tumbo, eisoro pirumenon. Blazing with lights, I see the founder's tomb. Then, turning to Thersilus, a companion of Tiberius, who reclined on the other side of the table, he asked him, who knew nothing about the matter, what poet he thought was the author of that verse, and on his hesitating to reply, he added another. Oras fessi masgabantimomenon, honored with torches masgabas you see. And put the same question to him concerning that likewise the latter replying that, whoever might be the author, they were excellent verses, he set up a great laugh, and fell into an extraordinary vein of jesting upon it. Soon afterwards, passing over the Naples, although at that time greatly disordered in his bowels by the frequent returns of his disease, he set out the exhibition of the gymnastic games, which were performed in his honor every five years, and proceeded with Tiberius to the place intended. But on his return, his disorder increasing, he stopped at Nola, sent for Tiberius back again, and had a long discourse with him in private, after which he gave no further attention to business of any importance. Upon the day of his death, he now and then inquired if there was any disturbance in the town on his account, and calling for a mirror, he ordered his hair to be combed and his shrunk cheeks to be adjusted. Then, asking his friends who were admitted into the room, do you think that I have acted my part on the stage of life well? He immediately subjoined. Ei de pane heikalos, to paikniu, dote croton, kai pantes umis metachiaras to paisati. If all be right, with joy your voices raise, in loud applauses to the actor's praise. After which, having dismissed them all, whilst he was inquiring of some persons who were just arrived from Rome, Concerning Drusus's daughter, who was in a bad state of health, he expired suddenly, amidst the kisses of Livia, and with these words, Livia, 
live mindful of our union, and now farewell, dying a very easy death, and such as he himself had always wished for. For as often as he heard that any person had died quickly and without pain, he wished for himself and his friends the like euthanasian and easy death, for that was the word he made use of. He betrayed but one symptom, before he breathed his last, of being delirious, which was this. He was all on a sudden much frightened, and complained that he was carried away by forty men. But this was rather a presage than any delirium, for precisely that number of soldiers belonging to the Praetorian cohort carried out his corpse. He expired in the same room in which his father Octavius had died, when the two Sextus, Pompey and Apuleius, were consuls, upon the fourteenth of the calends of September, the nineteenth of August, at the ninth hour of the day, being seventy-six years of age, wanting only thirty-five days. His remains were carried by the magistrates of the municipal towns and colonies, from Nola to Bovile, and in the night-time, because of the season of the year. During the intervals the body lay in some basilica, or great temple, of each town. At Bovile it was met by the equestrian order, who carried it to the city, and deposited it in the vestibule of his own house. The senate proceeded with so much zeal in the arrangement of his funeral, and paying honor to his memory, that, among several other proposals, some were for having the funeral procession made through the triumphal gate, preceded by the image of victory, which is in the senate-house, and the children of highest rank and of both sexes singing the funeral dirge. Others proposed that on the day of the funeral they should lay aside their gold rings and wear rings of iron, and others that his bones should be collected by the priests of the principal colleges. One likewise proposed to transfer the name of August to September, because he was born in the latter, but died in the former. Another moved that the whole period of time from his birth to his death should be called the Augustan Age, and be inserted in the calendar under that title. But at last it was judged proper to be moderate in the honors paid to his memory. Two funeral orations were pronounced in his praise, one before the temple of Julius by Tiberius, and the other before the rostra under the old ships by Drusus, Tiberius' son. The body was then carried upon the shoulders of senators into the campus martius, and there burnt. A man of praetorian rank affirmed upon oath that he saw his spirit ascend from the funeral pile to heaven. The most distinguished persons of the equestrian order, barefooted, and with their tunics loose, gathered up his relics, and deposited them in the mausoleum, which had been built in his sixth consulship, between the Flaminian Way and the bank of the Tiber, at which time, likewise, he gave the groves and walks about it for the use of the people. He had made a will, a year and four months before his death, upon the third of the nones of April, the eleventh of April, in the consulship of Lucius Plancus and Caius Silius. It consisted of two skins of parchment, written partly in his own hand and partly by his freedmen, Polybius and Hilarion, and had been committed to the custody of the Vestal Virgins, by whom it was now produced, with three codicils under seal, as well as the will. All these were opened and read in the Senate. He appointed as his direct heirs Tiberius for two-thirds of his estate, and Livia for the other third, both of whom had desired to assume his name. The heirs in remainder were Drusus, Tiberius's son, for one-third, 
and Germanicus with his three sons for the residue. In the third place, failing them, were his relations and several of his friends. He left in legacies to the Roman people forty millions of sesterces, to the tribes three millions five hundred thousand, to the Praetorian troops a thousand each man, to the city cohorts five hundred, and to the legions and soldiers three hundred each, which several sums he ordered to be paid immediately after his death, having taken due care that the money should be ready in his exchequer. For the rest he ordered different times of payment. In some of his bequests he went as far as twenty thousand sesterces, for the payment of which he allowed a twelve-month, alleging for this procrastination the scantiness of his estate, and declaring that not more than a hundred and fifty millions of sesterces would come to his heirs, notwithstanding that during the twenty preceding years he had received in legacies from his friends the sum of fourteen hundred millions, almost the whole of which, with his two paternal estates, and others which had been left him, he had spent in the service of the state. He left orders that the two Julius, his daughter and granddaughter, if anything happened to them, should not be buried in his tomb. With regard to the three codicils before mentioned, in one of them he gave orders about his funeral. Another contained a summary of his acts, which he intended should be inscribed on brazen plates, and placed in front of his mausoleum. In the third, he had drawn up a concise account of the state of the empire, the number of troops enrolled, what money there was in the treasury, the revenue, and arrears of taxes, to which were added the names of the freedmen and slaves from whom the several accounts might be taken. End of Caesar Augustus